Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Everybody, welcome in once again, David Summers. It's another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. Back into the ring we step, and we step back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, man, great today. Feeling really good, man. Looking forward to it. We got a great one today. Wow. I'm, I've been, uh, you know, doing my research uh, back into 1977. And, geez, I can't, I can't even believe myself how good we were doing and, uh, and how good a talent we had. And so, man, I, I'm cranked up. Got my old horse saddled and I'm ready to roll. Well, I noticed your show notes, and it looks like you are just jam-packed for this week with a whole lot to talk about. And don't forget, TNStud.com. While we're doing the show today, head over to TNStud.com. Check out the stud store. Check out the photos. There's so much to check out at TNStud.com. All right, so let's get right to it. Where are we riding to today, Ron? Well, in today's training, man, we're going to look at my southeastern. I'm going to call it today's training, my southeastern field of dreams. We got a big card on uh, March the 5th, 1977. It's got two no DQ title matches and a loser leave town match. And the TV, we're obviously, we're going to talk about to promote that card and we'll give you the attendance after the card. And uh, we're going to finish today with the learning tree. And it's going to be a great story about my grandfather's brother, Herb. And wow, Herb was a, Herb was a character. And uh, we're going to, we've got a great story that actually, was told to me by a fan instead of me telling fan story. <laughs> so a fan told you a story about Herb. Yes, fan okay, told me a story about Herb, and we're going to uh, we're going to go through that at the end of the show today. And I think fans are going to they're going to have a different opinion of Herb. Some of them, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a it's a really good story, uh, and, and I definitely want to get it told. Sounds like another great one, Ron. All right, my horse, Mister Pokalong is saddled up. He's got a skip in his step and he is ready to ride. He's, how can he have a skip in his step, man, when his name is Pokalong? Well, <laughs> you know, there you go again. Gracious. You, know, I mean, uh, you never cease to amaze me with these horses, Dave. Uh, you know, and none of them got a, a sound like a fast horse. You know, every one of your horse indicates, you know, they're a little bit on the slow side. Now, Pokalong is a but so am I, Ron. Oh, well, yeah. 
I never never had much thought, but I guess you you do take it easy, Dave. That's for sure. I try. So so we're going to ride, man. We're going to ride right on into uh, today's trading and uh, jump right into it. And and like I said, I'm going to call this my Southeastern Field of Dreams uh, because this one is going to require us to wear a new hat. One that I'd never thought of until this, this subject came to my mind a couple of weeks ago. And today we're going to look at what was happening in the smaller southeastern cities in 1977. We don't get to those very much anymore. But the question was, were the crowds growing or dying? And, uh, and what was making that happen? So obviously the fans uh, were making it happen. No doubt about it. So therefore, I decided we ought to have a fan's hat. Why not? And, you know, they're, they're responsible. And, that, and fans deserve a great deal of credit for all four of my territories and, uh, and how they helped to build them and how they supported those territories. So I'm sure many of you uh, remember the old movie, Dave. I know you do, Field of Dreams. Oh, you yeah. know, And the old cornfield where Kevin Costner keeps hearing the voice, if you build it, they will come. And long before that movie, back in 74 and 75, when I started Southeastern, I was constantly asking myself a similar question. My question was, if I build it, will they come? Uh-huh. So today we're going to find out by looking back more than 45 years ago at the many cities and fans that made Southeastern Knoxville what it became. Uh, you know, uh, and the fans are always responsible for the success of your company, especially if you own a wrestling company. So in each stud cast, we've been traditionally taking a look at the Knoxville cards and the crowds every week because, obviously, Knoxville is the largest city in southeastern wrestling. However, southeastern Knoxville could not have been successful without all those small cities surrounding it. In five different states, as a matter of fact, got those televisions. And within 150 miles of Knoxville, those were the smaller cities were responsible for making a success out of it. So let's talk about a few of them in 1977 that were putting Southeastern on the wrestling map. Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol, up there in the northeast part of the state, called the Tri-Cities. They were the only place other than Knoxville that had weekly matches. We only had two markets that had weekly matches. By 1977, those three cities, we were regularly selling out. We were in a building called the Recreation Center in Johnson City, and uh, fans were lining up early. Seats were gone sometimes an hour before match time. You couldn't get another person in the building. So beginning in 1977 and on through 1979, we began to not just run in Johnson City, but occasionally we would run matches in Kingsport and Bristol in their local arenas and their high school. So by 1977, Morristown, Tennessee, Harlan, Kentucky, they ran every other Saturday night. And, you know, those buildings were hard to get a ticket into. They were sold out every show, especially Morristown, which had a smaller building. Corbin, Kentucky, Middlesbrough, Kentucky, we went there every other week during the middle of the week. And every other week, by the time you got to the starting time, there was no way you could get into those buildings. They were just crammed. And in the summertime, we filled up their high school football stadiums, especially in Corbin, Kentucky. So uh, talk about Hazard, Kentucky, for just a second. Uh, It was once a month we ran it. It was the largest building in Southeastern other than the Coliseum. It held about 5,000 fans, wow. and, and, and on many, many occasions, we put 5,000 in that building, which means we were drawing as much in Hazard, Kentucky, 
is we were drawing in Knoxville once a month uh, at Hazard. So pretty darn amazing type of crowds that we were drawing. Other Kentucky cities were getting wrestling four times a year. You couldn't go to all of them every other week. You didn't want to go to some of them every month. So about uh, four times a year, we'd go to cities like Williamsburg and London, Kentucky, Barberville, Somerset, Manchester, Kentucky. Tennessee was full of these smaller cities like Sevierville and Rockwood and Crossville, Jamestown, Athens, Tennessee, Oak Ridge, where they made the atom bomb, uh, La Follette, uh, Newport, Greenville, Maryville, Oneida. I mean, you know, and there's many more of them. And every time we went to these buildings, the gyms were just packed. It was amazing how they just kept coming and coming. And most of those buildings were full 30 minutes before bell time. You look out the windows out of the sides of these gyms and you'd see lines of people and the buildings so packed that you knew they couldn't all get in. They're going to have to go home. And smaller cities we ran in Virginia, like Pennington Gap, uh, Lebanon, Virginia, Tazewell, Big Stone Gap. We went there twice a year because they were smaller. And, uh, you know, uh, it just made sense to go there twice a year. We still were going to West Virginia some, but only basically about twice a year. And we would go uh, to Beckley into Bluefield, maybe. And uh, then we ran some towns in North Carolina, Robbinsville, Cherokee, Waynesville, North Carolina. And uh, those people waited patiently, man, for their taste of Southeastern. We would do the same thing. About once a year, we'd show up in a North Carolina town. So the one thing they all had in common with Knoxville was every time we showed up, they got to see 14 to 16 of the best wrestlers in the country and the world at that time. The truly amazing thing about all these cities, Dave, was the fact that they all continued to fill their buildings. Every time we went there, they were full. And that didn't happen in other territories across the country with these small cities. Why do you think it was different in that area of the country right there around Knoxville? Why was it different? Well, Southeastern was a unique territory. Uh, It had many smaller cities, but it only had two larger markets. And so most territories had several larger cities. Florida, for instance, you had the Tampa, you had Miami, you had uh, Jacksonville, you had Orlando, you had Tallahassee, you had Fort Myers. I mean, you've got all these major markets. So they didn't have to run their smaller cities very often because they went every week to the same city. So they focused on the wrestlers working hard in those major cities every week because they were coming back the very next week again. They, they wanted to they had to follow that every week with another good match. So they didn't have to push guys when they ran in a small market they never pushed their guys to work hard in a small market because they weren't going to be back there for maybe a year or two years. So it, we had a different situation in Southeast, and we had to work just as hard in the smaller cities as we did in Knoxville and Johnson City and the Tri-Cities up there. So from the very beginning, I recognized the significance of these smaller markets. I recognized that we needed to keep them drawn if we were going to be successful, and uh, I steadily emphasized the importance uh, every time we were in a small town, I would say, guys, we got to work hard, man. we got to give them a lot. Uh, and, and it worked. So, Dave, like in Field of Dreams, we built it, you know. But instead of the baseball players coming to the field and like it happened in the movie, the wrestling fans came by the millions to matches all across the southeast. Oh, no doubt about it. It's amazing to see and understand all the things it took to make a wrestling company successful, Ron, and you really had your finger on the pulse. 
Well, you know, I mean, uh, we were lucky. We were in a good part of the country. Uh, we had a great television program. We had a huge television audience. And many companies never reached that, that level of success. And the good Lord blessed us. I guess that's a big portion of it is the good Lord definitely blessed us in Southeastern. No doubt about it. Sounds like uh, you were definitely blessed. So where are we right now? What do we, what do we do? We're on the trail. Let's go. But we're going to go back in the Coliseum. After last week, uh, we were in Chihuahua Park. Uh, this one's on a Sunday afternoon, March the 5th. It's uh, got two no-DQ title matches on this card and the loser leaves Southeastern match on it. So it's a it's good a really good card again. <laughs> that sounds like absolutely sounds like another big day. Who was in the opening match? What you how'd you get it started? Well, uh, a tremendous wrestler, you know, about six years into the sport, was joined by Don Carson uh, as a new associate of his, uh, and the guy's name was Bob Orton Jr. He oh. made his first appearance ever in Southeastern against Don Wright that day. He is going to be another tremendous heel. For Southeastern, we're loading up with tremendous heels. That's why you build territories. His brother, Ron Wright, Don's brother, Ron, was on that second match against Norvell Austin. During this time frame, very few times were both the Wright boys on the same card, but they're on this one. The third match was the loser leave Southeastern match, Dick Steinborn versus the former gladiator, Jim Dalton. And this match would finally answer the question of which one of these wrestlers is the real gladiator. Jimmy Golden was returning again to face Ronnie Garvin after a rare win the week before against Garvin. And Don Carson had a lot to do with that win. And the heat between Carson and uh, Garvin at this point was really building. My brother and Rob and I, we got a shot at the Southeastern tag titles of the Von Steiger brothers. So we had won our last title match with them the week before by disqualification. But we didn't get the belts because they got disqualified. This time, that wasn't going to happen. They get disqualified, they lose the belts. Main event was also a no-DQ cause, and this one was for the Southeastern Championship with the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson, and he's defending the Stomper, his belt, for the first time against Bob Armstrong. What a great match that one's going to be, obviously. <laughs> I bet I know where we're headed next, Ron. Uh, yeah, I had no doubt you'd do, my man. Uh, I'm sure your horse, uh, Mr. Pokalong, he's headed that way right now, you know. But, you know, because he's so slow, I got to figure out, oh, why don't you tell us what's next before you get there with him? Well, thank you for the invitation, Mr. Pokalong. And I would be glad to take the lead and put you and Lightning in the right direction. So stay with us if you can. We are going to find out what was on that TV show for Saturday, March 4th. 1977, it was going to end exactly 24 hours before the Coliseum bell sounded the next afternoon. How about that? Uh, dog, man, that's pretty sharp timing there, Dave. You know, I never thought about the TV show in in exactly 24 hours before the bell rings in the Coliseum yep. the next day. You know, maybe Mr. Pokalongi, maybe he's a little quicker than the other horses you've been riding. You know, I mean, he got you there pretty fast, man. You are ju you're just jealous of my horses, aren't you, Stud? <laughs> well, I, I hate to I'd hate to have to admit that, man. After hearing the names of it's okay. Uh, I'd I'd be afraid, man. I'd be afraid to leave your horses alone, Dave. <laughs> I'm telling you that. No telling where you might find them. So let's ride, man, into the TV of Saturday, May March fourth. And uh, obviously, this TV opens up with less than usual close up. And he's announcing uh, what fans are going to see on the show. And when the cameras back away, it's the same 
an opening that we usually lose, use. Les is sitting there with the Von Steiger brothers, and their southeastern belts are sitting on the desk in front of them, two of them. And there's kind of a little gasp from the studio audience when the cameras back off far enough. They get to see that giant set behind Les and the, and the two Germans, and and the photo is filled with two big old McGuire twins laying partially on top of each other and blood's everywhere. I mean, it's like, <laughs> wow, what happened to these boys? You know, and when the audience gasped, the Von Steigers began to laugh. <laughs> like, whoa, look at that. You know, so and they started bragging about doing what they promised to do the week before. And I think if fans remember last week, you know, they promised that uh, they were going to drop a German bomb on the big slobs and <laughs> going to blow them to pieces all over the building. Man. So, so, you know, so they, they, they told the same deal again pretty quickly. Well, we did what we told them we we're going to do. We, we dropped the bomb on the slobs and, you know, they got a little bloody. So let's ask them to, you know, please, guys, watch what you're saying here, you know. And then Les mentioned to him, you know, well, maybe the two twins were a little overmatched with you guys, you know. And uh, so Kurt Von Steiger, he asked for the director to back up the video instead of just showing that still shot. And and the way he kind of put it was and let the lazy, fat Americans like those two slobs on the screen there see how Germans take care of whale blood. Oh, my God. <laughs> it got worse. Instead oh of backing God. off, it got worse. And. And then they both cracked up again and again. Let's ask them, please, guys, watch your, watch your language and what you're saying, you know. And, you know, and actually, I liked it in the control room. And is the most uh, entertaining personality I'd seen the Von Steigers since they arrived in Southeastern uh, yeah. a lot of months earlier, you know. And the short video then began. And both McGuire twins were already bloody at the point the video starts. And within a couple minutes, they're both pinned. And the Germans never stopped laughing during all of it. Les, Les was quiet, and they just continued to laugh. And I guess he was happy for that. They laughed, and they weren't saying something really crude. <laughs> so he, he let it go. And, then, you know, they were really enjoying themselves. So Les, Les kind of took a little wind out of their sails when the video ended. He brought up the fact that they'll be defending their, their belts again next <laughs> tomorrow, as a matter of fact, against two very different brothers than, than the McGuire. He added that they were also welcome to stay at the set with him and and uh, see those two guys, the Fuller brothers, because we were in the first match of this particular show. So uh, Carl just chimed in right away. He said, we don't need to see them. You know, he goes, they, they're so far superior to any American tag team. He said, that they look forward to being back with us next week to open the show again. And they're going to see a picture of the Fuller brothers looking just like the Fat Slobs McGuire's all bloody in the no, so uh, they picked up their belts. They threw them over their shoulders. Then they stiffened their bodies. They did something that they had never done. They stiffened their bodies, man. They threw out those right arms. They saluted as the Germans had done in World War II. Uh, and uh, they screamed, Heil Hitler. Uh, right? Uh, and, wow. uh, boy, Les <laughs> went nuts. It was the first time they'd done that since coming to Southeastern. But, boy, it got the best heat they'd had since they came to Southeastern as well. Les got red in the face, man. He started telling them that he wasn't going to tolerate this on his show. and that they, But they got up and they were gone before he ever finished the sentence. So Rob and I were on the way to the ring. I saw the deal that they did on the TV in the back in the dressing room. And uh, when I went past the set, I told Rob, I said, follow me, man. And so we went over and stopped off at the set with Les. We weren't supposed to. 
But I couldn't help but, but take advantage of the Germans, something they had done that really left us a good end. So uh, we stopped at the set on the way to the ring, and uh, Les was still fuming a little bit. And I said, you know, Les, uh, we saw uh, what those two Germans just did a second ago, and uh, uh, we'd like to do a little bit of salute to the Germans since they've saluted the Americans with their little deal. So, <laughs> you know. Then I took my arm and Rob Rob joined in. He picked up on it right away. You know, we we <laughs> bent our arms up and closed our fist, and you, and then you slapped your arm down on top okay. of your bicep. <laughs> yeah, the good old American salute. You know, <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, the, the old up yours, American. Yeah. Salute. Right. Yeah. So, did, the, did the TV station let you guys get away with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> so, you know, there was no censors in the studio back in those right. days, you know, and we were recording a TV show and there was nobody there, there that said, hey, you can't do that. You can't show that. So we left it in the show. So, you know, we're going to get back to that salute again later in this guess. But, uh, you know, the fans exploded. When we did that, boy, that crowd really rocked. So wow. we went right in the ring, man, and we got started. Boy, after we did the little salute, it was an easy match. We tore the studio on. It's up. We got a big win. Uh, we put the fuller leg locks on Australian Bill Dundee and David Schultz, both at the same time, got a double submission. And then we went back to the set with Les for the first interview about our match with the Von Steigers the next day. Uh, Von Steigers were in Studio B, and uh, they began mad right off because of the hand gesture we did. You know, what is the, you know, they promised their countrymen that, that they were going to give them a victory tomorrow uh, since they were indestructible against ignorant Americans. It's going to be easy. And they added that we'd feel like we feel their German crab hole rather than the old Boston crab, which it really was. And they predicted an easy win over. Uh, just like they'd had over the fat slobs of Sunday before. So Rob started off with the interview that this German team had basically, and it was the fact that they had only lost one title match since they came to Southeastern and that tomorrow was the end of their run, that what they had done last week to, to those really nice McGuire twins who were really, really nice guys was just horrible. And that tomorrow they wouldn't be facing McGuire's, but Fuller's. And, you know, crowd liked that. And then uh, I took it from there, you know, and I, I said something about if Germans were tougher than Americans, they'd have never lost World War One or two, especially both of them, you know, and that they were two-time losers to Americans and that tomorrow fans in the Coliseum were going to see some blood again. But uh, just like last week in the park with the Von Steigers, but this time it was going to be German blood and a whole lot of it. And uh, because of how they destroyed the McGuire twins, you know, I uh, said, Rob and I, uh, get, gives us more incentive to destroy the Von Steiger brothers tomorrow. The crowd popped. Uh, this match would now have real meaning because of the two interviews and uh, what the Germans have said and our little deal back to them with our salute to them. We were going to add something to the card for the following day. And uh, that's what every booker wanted to happen when he booked a match. So we get to the second segment of the program and it opens with Don Carson's. He's sitting there behind him, standing somebody that nobody's ever seen at this point. Bob Orton Jr.'s there. Bob Orton Jr. wore the same cowboy hat, I think, every year I ever remember him from 1970 to he may still be wearing it today. I got a feeling. And it always looked old and worn way back in 1971, the first time I saw him with it. 
But Bob Orton Jr. was anything but old and worn, man. This kid was a hell of a wrestler and uh, really, really tough. Uh, he was a second-generation wrestler. He was the son of Bob Orton Sr. And I wrestled his father, Bob Orton Sr., many times in my first year in Florida in 1970-71. And all Ortons produced some great wrestlers. And uh, Bob Orton Jr. was certainly, uh, he was he was nothing other than great himself. So Carson introduced his protege, as he called him, to Les. And Orton, Les, going to shake his hand. He's first time he's there. He reaches up to shake his hand. And uh, Orton <laughs> refuses to shake with it. You know, and, and Les, you know, says, uh, welcome, welcome here, Bob. And, you know, and Orton doesn't say anything and he doesn't reach for his hand. Then Les, like a good guy, he, go, he went ahead and put him over. And he, he told the, the fans, you know, that didn't know much about him, uh, what a great family he comes from and how good his father was. And he said he had heard a, a great deal about Junior because Les hadn't seen a whole lot of Bob Orton Junior. He had left Florida before Bob Orton Junior started there. Then he said, uh, you know, that he had heard Bob Orton Jr. was an excellent wrestler, but he preferred to take shortcuts, which was true. Mm. And Orton Jr. just smiled and he shook his head in agreement with that line. That it's okay. Yeah, you can say that. That's right. Let's ask Carson then exactly what was his relationship with uh, Bob Orton Jr. And uh, Don said only to bring him here. He said, that's all my relationship is. And, and let him do what he does. That's Thatcher. And then uh, he less got to digging a little deeper before he let Carson just leave with that, you know, about, uh, uh, well, Don, are you here to manage him? You're going to manage him? And Carson smiled and he answered, uh, once you see him in action, Les Thatcher, and all these people out here, they're going to know he doesn't need a manager. He's a force in wrestling by himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, fans here are going to get treated to one of the greatest rising stars in all the world. So Les, you know, does his being here. Uh, it goes on, you know, he asked him right away, does his being here have anything to do with you and Ronnie Garvin's problem? And uh, so now, you know, Les is digging here, man. And Carson, you know, says, uh, you know, time's going to tell Les Thatcher and it, it's time for fans to see a real wrestler. And he got up and he walked Bob Orton Jr. to the ring. Bob Orton's going to wrestle in the very next match. He patted him on the back and he went to the dressing room. So Orton Jr. made an impression, of, all right. First time he was on Southeastern TV, he was wrestling a really good kid, man, Rip Smith, that had been in Southeastern for four months at this time. And Rip also had a really good wrestling background as an amateur and a great wrestler. So they had what uh, exactly what I expected them to have, a great wrestling match. And Orton's movements in the ring were classic, smooth. He was very deliberate about what he did. I was impressed. I had not seen him wrestle in three years since uh, 1972. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he had really, really improved. And, uh, you know, he, he had the wrestling ability of a great baby face. But at the same time, he had an attitude of a nasty heel. So Orton and Smith wrestled with no punches or illegal maneuvers for more than 10 minutes on the TV. Pretty, pretty tough match to have to have him doing a lot of wrestling. They shook hands several times during the match, had clean breaks several times during the match. And Smith, who was much younger and less experienced, he finally ended up in a situation where he had Orton on the ropes and he appeared to be going to give him a clean break, Orton did. And when Smith uh, let down his guard, so to speak, Orton hit him with a shot, man. Wow. And it knocked, I thought it knocked him out. 
Uh, I mean, he went down face first. Orton picked him up easily. He picked him up like he weighed 180 pounds, and Rip Smith was a good 230. And he picked him up easy, and he put him in a real backbreaker. And I'm not talking about the old hangman type of backbreaker that Big Bad John used, mm-hmm. but he put him in that agonizingly painful one where you stretch him across your shoulders and you put your hand over his chin and then you reach up and you get his thighs and you pull down. Oh, I've I've been in that hole before. And as soon as I saw him do it, I was like, wow, I don't know if I'd ever seen anybody do it like that. And when he pulled down with his arms and uh, on both sides of his body, you could hear Rip's uh, spine crack. And you could all, it's like, wow, geez, I he like it. He was tearing him in two. Loud enough that the studio crowd, they groaned with Rip, and just like they'd received the pain. And the rest asked immediately if Rip gave up. You know, and I could clearly hear Rip screaming from the control room upstairs and in the studio. Uh, you know, he was screaming, yes, you know, and the Rip patted Orton on the back, you know, to indicate it was over. But it wasn't over in Orton's mind. Oh. I mean, he, he just kept it there, man. He, wow. And then he jumped up in the air, and when he landed on his feet, he cranked down as hard as he could on the hole. And the rib screamed so, and the studio crowd screamed. <laughs> they were like, oh, God, no. It was as if, as if everybody was in the hole, everybody in the building. I screamed a little bit, and, you know, and, the, and actually the <laughs> – my director sitting next to me, he screamed. He goes, wow, Ron, what, what is he doing? Then the ref screamed at, the, at Orton. He says, I'm going to disqualify if you don't let him go now. So he let him go. But uh, not as if most guys used to let him go in this hole. Most guys dropped their opponent straight off their back, and they, the opponent landed on their side, or they landed on their back. But uh, Orton Jr. lifted up Rip's legs, and he dropped him straight down on his head. And it looked like he broke his neck. I was like, wow. It was another, like, after seeing those two backbreakers and then seeing this, it was like, oh, my gosh. And that's where I remember Ken Cade, man, sitting next to me thinking, that rip broke his neck. He screamed, you know. It was as dangerous as it looked. And I knew it must have done He'd probably done that many times before without hurting anybody seriously. Mm-hmm. But I could hardly believe it was possible and not hurt somebody seriously by doing that. So that being the case, I knew right then that Bob Orton Jr. was going to have a long run in Southeastern. Wow. Man, you have got it going at this point. This is a great spot. Let's take a break right here. And there's so much more. This story will continue in moments. This studcast comes right back. Stay with us. Ron Fuller is known worldwide as a great storyteller, especially when it comes to wrestling. However, his greatest story has now become a novel. Brutus has more than 45 star reviews on Amazon.com. Look for it under Brutus Novel. See them for yourself and find out how readers react to the roller coaster terror ride of Brutus. An African lion is on the loose in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now there's a plot. From the mind of Ron Fuller comes Brutus. This amazing novel came from a one-night dream 
and two years of writing to piece it together. Get it now at Amazon.com Brutus Novel or the special autograph copy at TNStud.com and click Stud Store. Many of the reviews compare Brutus to one of the greatest books and movies of all time, Jaws. Some reviewers say it's better than Jaws. There's nothing like it. Imagine what a specially autographed novel like this would mean to your family if it becomes a movie. Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or TNStud.com. Click Stud Store for the autographed copy. Experience the stud in a totally different way. Hey, everybody. Welcome back in. David Summers with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's another stud cast, and the story continues. Check out TNstud.com. I've been flipping through the gallery of photos this afternoon while we've been hearing the storyteller tell the story. And, y'all, if you are into the history of wrestling, you got to check out the photo gallery at TNstud.com. A ton of photos. There are even videos there. And then, of course, the stud store, TNstud.com. All right, let's get right back into it. Stud, where do we pick up? Well, Obviously, we're in the personality profile segment of every show. And why this show is an amazing one, uh, we got two world champions in this profile. Terry Funk, the former world champion, Harley Race, the new one. The emphasis in this personality profile was on Knoxville and Southeastern wrestling because we were potentially going to get the long-awaited return match between the two of these guys, between Terry Funk and Harley Race that had beat him for the title in the Coliseum on April 26, 1977, which was just six weeks after this program. So that fact alone uh, that these two world stars were talking about a return match between themselves and Knoxville, that spoke volumes for where Southeastern ranked at this point in the world wrestling. I mean, you know, you didn't get those type of title matches very often. And there was talk of it, and that's what this was all about. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, they talked about each other in this one rather than uh, Terry Funk uh, jumping on me and Harley jumping on somebody else, you know, and mentioning other guys like he had the week before. They kept this between themselves. And uh, gosh, what a great personality profile it was and a great program and a great opportunity for wrestling fans in the Southeast to hear from two of the greatest champions of all time. So after the profile, Ronnie Garvin joined Lester the set to watch this match from the Sunday before with uh, Jimmy Golden. And it showed Don Carson arrive at ringside just as Garvin was prepared to jump off the top rope in Jimmy's throat again. And Carson got Garvin's attention and uh, Golden slammed Garvin from the top rope and covered him and uh, he got a pin at it. Garvin was obviously extremely upset about what he was watching on the screen there, you know, and he kept asking Les, what is Carson doing down at the ring during my matches? And in the next section of the show, Carson is going to have the opportunity to to show Garvin do the same thing to him. So Jimmy Golden and Garvin's opponent for the next day, you know, Jimmy was his opponent for the next day. And, uh, you know, Les had Garvin stay with him at the set and commentate because Jimmy Golden is wrestling in the next live event. However, there wasn't much talk that went on about Golden in this match. The conversation in the match, Jimmy's match, was all about Bob Orton Jr., great part of it, you know, and it didn't take long for Carvin to start asking Les what was the deal between Don Carson and Bob Orton Jr. Obviously, he'd seen the first part of the show. 
He wanted to know, uh, why is Bob Orton Jr. suddenly in Southeastern wrestling? What's that all about? He just kept asking less questions because Les didn't know the answers to him, you know, and he asked, uh, you know, was it because him meaning himself that uh, because I turned down Don Carson as a manager, you know, it's kind of like he was almost thinking to himself and he's asking questions to himself. And then, you know, he was, he said, well, you know, what if anything uh, did it have to do with Carson getting involved in his matches lately? Is there a reason that, there's a hookup. He's trying to he's trying to figure out why is Bob Orton Jr. here, and Les is Les can't answer his questions. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then he got a really serious one, and he said, you know, did Don Carson know anything about the history between me and Bob Orton Jr. Uh, and Les says, you know, that everything it was, that, Ronnie, I don't know. You know, I mean. Uh, what is the history, you know? And, and 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 he refused to talk to Les about the history. He just asked that last question, do you think Don Carson knows what happened between me and Bob Borden Jr.? It was a pretty intriguing little deal for the listener. It's about, you know, well, what is this Bob Borden Jr. here for? You know, is he here for a reason, something special? Well, Golden won the match during the middle of this discourse, and he won it with his drop kick off the top rope, and then he went into Studio B and, he split the interview with Garvin that was still at the set. Jimmy started the interview from Studio B's by himself, and he told Les he didn't know why Don Carson had come to the ring last Sunday. And he said, I didn't need Don Carson's help to beat Ronnie Garvin, but, you know, he brought, he, he caused it, and, and I won. And he says, I'm looking forward to the second match with Garvin tomorrow. You know, so Garvin warned, you know, Carson right off. You don't interfere in my match tomorrow, Carson. You better stay in the dressing room. And he, you know, you could tell he was getting angrier about this deal with Carson every time he talked about it. He, he said something personal to Carson at the end. And he said, you know, uh, you'll be breathing out of your throat. If you want to be breathing out of your throat, you better stay away from the ring tomorrow, Carson, because I'm going to jump in your throat if I get the opportunity. <laughs> so. Well, then Don Carson and the Mongolian Stomper, they joined Les at the set, the last segment of the show. They watched the end of the main event from the Sunday before, just like Garvin had seen it in his match. And the video in this one clearly showed Stomper about to be beaten by Bob Armstrong when Carson ran up into the ring because he wanted to save his own butt because Garvin had sneaked down to the ring behind him. He saw Garvin behind him, and he ran right up into the ring you know, he wanted to get his man disqualified for one thing, obviously, because he's about to lose to Armstrong. And he also wanted to escape whatever Ronnie Garvin had in mind for him. So uh, in Don Carson's usual style while watching these videos, he seemed to be watching a totally different video than what was on the screen. You know, he started out as he always. And, and instead of uh, him saying that Armstrong's about to beat my man, he says, look, Stomper's about to beat Armstrong right here. And then Garvin shows up, and I run up into the ring, and they disqualify my scomper who was going to beat Armstrong. And he goes, if he'd have won that match by beating Armstrong, he wouldn't have been forced into this next one that he's forced into. Now he's got to wrestle Armstrong again, and this time it's a no disqualification match. And he had a good point, except for the fact that he had his story backwards. It was Armstrong that was about to beat his man. So uh, instead, it was a return match. It was going to be the following day in the Coliseum. And this time it's going to be for the Stomper's belt. And it's going to be for no DQ. 
So if Carson does the wrong thing in this one and he gets his man DQ'd, he's lost the title. So Carson continued saying, you know, Les Thatcher, which he always said to Les, he never called him Thatcher or Les. It was always Les Thatcher. That means if anything illegal happens outside or inside the ring tomorrow, it makes no difference. You cannot be disqualified. So Les finally find a spot to jump in, which was pretty hard to do when Carson had control of the microphone. And he said, you know, that should make you real happy, Don. He goes, isn't that how your stomper wins so many matches with your help? <laughs> and then when you, he gets in trouble, you get him normally disqualified to save the belt. So basically, uh, Don, this, this match has no rules. And you can cheat as much as you want. <laughs> so Carson exploded. He didn't like that comment. He, he started in this long trade about, you know, how he's never cheated. You know, I don't cheat. You know, and I don't have to cheat. My stomper's unbeatable, you know, and uh, and how can you say that, Thatcher, you know, and that tomorrow in the Coliseum, he's going to do exactly as you've just suggested, Les. <laughs> now, since you brought it up, you're right, Thatcher. And he goes, that's exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to cheat. <laughs> so it was a good interview. So he and the stomper stormed off the set. And uh, guess who appears in the studio, man, for the last match? Oh, Bob Armstrong. Man, the fans erupted. And Bob took over. He passed around that front row, man, in the studio, and he high-fived everybody. And he got introduced by Phil Rainey, and, boy, he tore the house down, as he always did. And then he went to the set, got him a big win again, went to the set with Les and did the last interview. So Les asked him if he had seen the video from a few minutes ago with Don Carson and the stomper at the set. And Bob took it from there, you know, and he said something about, you know, his proving last week that the stomper was not unbeatable, as Carson just claimed. He had the stomper beat. Garvin cost him a win over the monster Mongolian right in the middle of the ring. He said, I could have beat him right in the middle of the ring. And if Garvin had to come down there and force Carson into the ring, I would have beat him, and I would have been the first guy to beat him. He said he didn't know exactly what was going on between Carson and Garvin, and he really didn't. And Bob doesn't hardly say this very often, but he said, I don't know what's going on, but I don't give a damn. (laughs) because It ain't got nothing to do with me and the stomper. And he said, tomorrow he's going to make Southeastern history. He's going to beat the Mongolian stomper, no DQ or not, right in the center of the ring. He says, and if Don Carson gets involved tomorrow, he says, I'm going to slap the blonde off his head. <laughs> <laughs> so and he rolled on, man. He said, you know, when he came here three months ago, he, he said, I wanted just to win the Southeastern belt. You know, and he said, I've been waiting patiently for my shot for three months. He goes, tomorrow in the Knoxville Coliseum, it's going to be my day. You know, he promised fans that, you know, if they come out and support me tomorrow, I'm going to leave that ring wearing that beautiful belt, no DQ match or not. Studio audience obviously loved Bob, and they popped. And uh, on the end, they jumped up their feet, man, by the time he got to the end of it and had his last say. After this show, I was looking at another big Coliseum crowd, man, the following afternoon. Oh, man, I, I bet you were. Let me see if I can get all this. You and Rob against the Germans for the Southeastern tag belts, no DQ. Another new nasty heel, Bob Orton Jr., in his first Coliseum match. Garvin and Golden again, and a no-DQ-anything-goes-championship match 
with the stomper defending against Bob Armstrong in his first Southeastern Championship match. That's a lot. Tell us what happened the next day, Ryan. Well, it was a lot. You know, it's a heck of a card. And uh, so the day started off with a bang, obviously, uh, because uh, Bob Orton Jr. was in that match. And it's going to turn out there are going to be a lot of bangs in his matches. So he starts off. Don Wright, his opponent, is going to get carried out of the ring. And Ron, his brother, is going to have to go down there and do part of the carrying because Bob Orton Jr. puts uh, Don in it in that backbreaker, the same one he put Rip Smith on television that day, and he refused to release him at the end of it. Don got really hurt just about uh, the way I thought it was going to happen with Rip Smith when Orton finally broke the hold instead of uh, dropping him straight off of his back. He tilted him upside down and dropped him on his head. And then in the second match, Ron, after carrying his brother out in the opening match, he went back to the ring, and he was really fired up, and uh, he's wrestling Norvell Austin. And, uh, boy, before the bell rang, Ron just went after him, and uh, and he gave the fans what they were or had there to see in Ron Wright's case. And another good old Tennessee dog whooping is what happened. <laughs> you know, and uh, the fans really, really got into it. Uh, Dick Steinborn won the next match. He sent uh, Jim Dalton, the unmasked gladiator, packing from Southeastern. It was a loser-leave-town match and loser-leave-Southeastern match. So Steinborn now is the king so far as him and, the, and Jim Dalton and the masked gladiator thing. That's all over. Jimmy Golden and Ronnie Garvin's match had a wild ending on it. Things were really heating up at this point between Carson and Garvin. Jimmy Golden had Garvin reeling. He was he was taking it to Garvin, and Garvin stopped him. He hit him with a gut shot, and Golden grabbed the headlock, and Garvin shot him in to the referee really hard. Uh, the ref shot through the ropes out of the ring onto the concrete, and uh, that gave Garvin a great deal of time to do whatever he wanted to do at this point. So Garvin piledrived Golden twice in this match. Right then. And then he went to the top rope to, to do his finish. He's going to jump in his throat. And uh, just like the week before, uh, you know, Carson came down. So instantly, Carson was there on the floor again, as he had been the week before. But Garvin's no fool. He was kind of expecting it, I guess. And he saw him this time. And he turned around, standing on the top rope. And instead of Jumping toward Jimmy, he just turned around and he jumped off the top rope all the way down on the concrete and hit Carson with an elbow. Ooh. <laughs> and Carson, the crowd popped. They exploded. And Carson went flying face first. He slid on the concrete face first. It was like, wow. They looked like he killed him. And then Garvin just climbed back again, back up on the top rope. And Golden's still laying there, man. He'd had two pile drivers. He wasn't going to get up referees just struggling to get back into the ring. And as uh, soon as uh, Garvin starts up that top rope again, here comes Bob Orton Jr. from the back of the building. And he climbed up behind Garvin, and he shoved Garvin off the top rope. And Garvin took a big old somersault across Jimmy Golden laying there and landed on his back on the far side of the ring. And the referee was crawling back in. Jimmy crawled over and covered him. The ref counted Garvin out, and Garvin had lost two weeks in a row, basically, almost the same way one time with Carson doing it to him and this time with Orton doing it to him. So uh, Orton had picked up Carson before the match, the bell had even rung, and when Garvin looked around for him, they were gone. 
there's going to be some real happening here between obviously from Carson and Garvin. Oh, for real. I got to ask this, Ryan, how was the crowd responding to like infighting between heels, between two heels? Well, they were enjoying it. I mean, you know, the, the crowd always wants to see heels have problems and, uh, right, right. you know, uh, so it was a real thrill for them, I think. And, and when Garvin jumped off that top rope onto Carson and hit him with that elbow, wow. I mean, that building exploded, uh, you know, and they'd probably never seen an angle in which heels were competing against each other. That didn't happen in many territories, uh, you know, and to be honest, uh, I don't think I'd seen many angles like that to myself. And, you know, I just came up with the idea, let's do something that's really, really different. And there was a reason for all this. It's going to become clear to everyone real soon. One of the high spots of the entire day at the Coliseum happened next, Dave. And it was with Rob and I when we were about to be introduced against the Von Steiger brothers. And I went over and got the microphone from Phil Rainey. And I, I asked the crowd. Would y'all like to stand up and help me and Rob salute the Germans the same way we did on TV yesterday? And all that crowd popped. They stood up, man. It was great. And we made the fist. and We popped those arms up there. And everybody in the building was in on their feet. And they all saluted the Germans. And, uh, boy, the Germans were great workers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the Germans were great workers, man. They had great timing, and they just got out of the ring to grab their belts and went right back to the dressing room. It, you know, like it wasn't even going to be a match. Right. Or right. the crowd then exploded. Then they erupted. They booed like crazy, man. They stayed in the dressing room for probably five minutes, long enough the two referees and Les had to go to the dressing room, and in a couple of minutes of conversation or whatever. Out came the Von Steigers with the belts, and they came back to the ring. And when they finally got back in the ring, the crowd was still on its feet. They were still booing them, man. And uh, and I, I went over and got the microphone again, and I said, how about we give them one more? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, and they exploded again, man. Rob and I, we gave them another salute, and then we just charged those boys. And, wow, what a start that was to a match. It was you know, one of the best starts I can ever remember, man, in a match where we just, the crowd was already on their feet and they'd been saluting those guys and all this controversy, and we just took advantage of it. And that match rocked, obviously. And, uh, you know, we had, we had promised to, the day before that we were going to take care of them and they were going to be in, end up being bloody, and that's exactly what happened. They were both bleeding. At the end of the match, because it was a no-DQ match, they just grabbed their belts and they left the ring. They went to the dressing room. They got counted out. Our hands got raised because there was no DQ match. We were declared the champions, but uh, you know we didn't we didn't get the belts because the belts were back in their dressing room. Mm. We'll talk about a little bit more about that uh, come the next week. Uh, but in the main event, which was another DQ title match, this one was really amazing. Both Bob and the Armstrong. Uh, and the Stomper were bleeding in this match, and uh, Bob had him trapped in the corner. Man, he was about to—he was about to put him away. He was hitting him with those big old right hand shots that he'd been winning all those matches with lately. Mm. Carson, because it was a no DQ match, he just jumped in the ring behind Bob, and Bob didn't see him. The referee tried to stop him, but uh, Carson just nailed the referee. The referee went down, and then Carson took out 
uh, you know, underneath his huge sport coat, he pulled out the old peanut butter, man. Mm-hmm. No big black glove, and he loaded it up, and Bob's still over there rocking the stomper in the corner, and Bob never saw it coming. Carson hit him in the back of the head. Bob dropped face first on the mat, and stomper just hung there in the corner. Carson turned Bob over on his back, and he pushed the stomper on top of him. Stomper fell across him, and the crowd went crazy. It was the the real deal. Carson had got it job done, like he said. But boy, then they, here comes Ronnie Garvin to the ring. So Carson never saw Garvin at this point. So Garson thinks that he's in the, it just fine. The ref's still down. He's got Stomper on top of uh, Bob. And so he takes his time and he slowly removes his black glove and he puts it back under his sport coat. And when he turned to leave the ring, he turned right into face-to-face with Ronnie Garvin. Oh, no. <laughs> and what a pop there was from that crowd. Wow. <laughs> now, Carson ain't got his glove on. He can't protect himself. Carson started backing away. And, uh, and then Garvin just backed him into a corner. Carson dropped down on his knees, begging. And Garvin jerked him up and piled driving. Wow, there was another pop. Carson's now shaking and he's crazy, rolling all over the mat. And so Garvin went across the ring where Stomper was still laying on top of Armstrong. And he walked past him. He walked past the two of them and he crawled through the ropes on the apron ring like he was going to go back to the dressing room. And then he stopped and looked up at that crowd, man. And he pointed toward the top rope like, well, you want to see it? <laughs> right. It was the biggest pop of the night. Right then. I mean, the crowd realized, oh, he's going to jump off on Stomper. So, uh, you know, everybody in the building saw what was coming when he did that. And Carson was laying on one side of the ring. The ref was on his hands and knees, struggling to get to his feet. Stomper's laying on top of Armstrong. And uh, Ronnie Garvin climbed to the top rope. And, uh, you know, (laughs) with all great workers, they just have a feel for when they've got the crowd in the palm of their hand. And they know how to milk it, man, to get as much as they can out of it. And Garvin Boy was a great worker. So he stood there on that top rope. And then he slowly spread his arms wide, man, you know, like to, to really create the impact. Of, I'm going to kill him. right? And, he, and then he sailed as high as he ever had, man. And he sailed right into southeastern history, man. He planted that knee across the back of Stomper's neck. And uh, wow, what another explosion from the crowd. Uh, Stomper rolled off, holding his neck. Garvin put Bob Armstrong on top of the Stomper. He helped the referee get over to make the count, and he went to the dressing room. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, when he went to the dressing room, the referee called over there to count him out. And uh, it wasn't just the referee that counted him out. It was actually, it was the crowd itself. They counted right along with him. So then uh, the ref retrieved the belt from the timekeeper. He raised the staggering Bob Armstrong's hand in victory, and he presented him with the gold, man. And you would have thought that Bob had just won the world championship. Wow. That crowd went crazy. Man, Ron, that afternoon, the crowd was so into this thing. That had to be one of the biggest events in Southeastern history. How do you follow up something like that? Well, we're going to follow it. Actually, we're going to follow it even better because uh, we, we're going to do something that really probably maybe never been done. We're coming back the next week with the first ever, I think maybe probably the first ever in history, heel versus heel cage match. 
in which Ronnie uh -huh. Garvin is going to wrestle the Mongolian stomper in the cage. Wow. And after all that, it's a little anti-dramatic, if you're asking me, to ask what the attendance was on that afternoon in March 1977. But I'll ask anyway. You, I'm sure you guys did really well. Well, you know, uh, we were we were steady, man, at the 5,000 level here. We're just, uh, you know, we're a little tiny shot under five or maybe 200 above 5,000. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, after watching this match, though, and seeing what happened and seeing how those people reacted to what Garvin was doing, uh, I was already wondering what's going to be next week's attendance, man. I bet you were. I can't believe what was happening every week in Southeastern back in 1977. Can't wait for next week. I think it's time we get that cold drink and we take a seat under the learning tree. Set it up for us, Ron. Well, our learning tree twisting today, and uh, this one is a different one. Uh, you know, uh, so it, it, this one came from a gentleman named Jeff McGuire. And before I get to the question, I want to explain how this question started to begin with. You know, I ran a photo uh, on my social media site about a week ago. With my grandfather, Roy Welch, and his two brothers, Herb and Lester, they're on their way to a ring. And uh, like I said, he'll put it on my social media sites. And a few days after this was on there, I got this response from a gentleman named uh, Jeff McGuire. And unlike the pattern on the studcast where I'm always telling the stories and the history, Mr. McGuire told me a story. So, and I knew as soon as I heard the story that it was true because it was about Herb and it perfectly described Herb. So <laughs> my grandfather's brother, Herb, was, was he was one of the toughest guys in wrestling history, man. And, and like most Welches, he had a lot of shooting ability. He learned how to wrestle before he became a professional wrestler. He knew how to shoot. And he was a pretty darn good worker as well. In fact, he was the world junior heavyweight wrestling champion for five years straight in the early 1940s. And then he got in a bad car wreck, and uh, that accident and the injury that occurred from it forced him to give up the belt without ever being beaten. And years later, he got well, and uh, when he should have never been able to wrestle again, he was able to go back to wrestling, and he won the title back again. So Herb wrestled from the early 1930s until the late 1970s, 50 years in the ring. Pretty amazing record he had and uh, had survived that bad car wreck. But after Herb retired from the ring, he started training wrestling. Many of those wrestlers that he trained turned out to become national stars. Some of them for the WWF, one for the WWE. Uh, he trained the Honky Tonk Man. He trained Dr. D, David Schultz. He trained Coco Beware. All of those guys were Hall of Famers. All wow. three of those guys, yeah. Hall of Famers. And then he trained uh, Larry Latham, uh, Moondog Spot, uh, and, and probably a lot of guys I don't know, you know, that he trained. So uh, I've done Super Stud Cast, uh, number eight with Honky Tonk Man, number 14, uh, Super Stud Cast is David Schultz, number 36, the recent one is with Coco Beware. And then every one of those stud casts, each one of these guys recalls their training with Herb. They got Herb stories. They're like, wow, your grandpa's brother was a demon. <laughs> just, they don't know how to describe him. And if people want to listen to those podcasts, I mean, those are really good, those super stud casts. And I suggest if you haven't listened to them, they're all classics, and especially their comments about Herb. So you can get them, obviously, at tnstud.com and superstudcast and, or patreon.com slash studcast. 
Anyway, every one of the three had great respect for Herb. And uh, you can hear for yourself stories like the Honky Talk Man. Uh, Honky Talk Man, when he trained there, he trained in Herb's barn, and he had to drink out of the horse trough. <laughs> Herb wouldn't give him regular water. <laughs> he had a horse trough there. And he would work Honky Talk Man over, and he'd say, you can get your water out of that trough right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then uh, David Schultz tells a story about the first time he worked out with Herb. That when he got home, he had to call his wife in the house to come and help him get out of the car. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> he couldn't walk to the walk to the house. And the Birdman talked about him getting stretched. How many times Herb stretched him? So that's why when I received this story from Mr. McGuire after running the photo of Herb, I knew it was legit. I knew his story was legit. So he asked me to tell the story on the studcast. Well. Since this photo ran recently, and I've been talking about barns and uh, herb training and barns, I'm going to use an old blacksmith uh, who made horseshoes. Blacksmiths used to make horseshoes. I want to use that old saying that they did. Uh, I want to strike the iron while the fire's hot, by golly. And uh, since we're talking about herb, and uh, so let's just just get to it. So, Mr. McGuire, uh, this, as best I can tell it, this is your story about your friend who was unlucky enough, and I mean unlucky enough, to end up in front of Herb Welch and asking him to trade him to be a wrestler. <laughs> That's a bad place to be. So Mr. McGuire had a good old Southern respect during this. I'm going to use Mr. McGuire's entire story almost word for word if I can. Mr. McGuire, he's a good old Southern guy, and he calls Herb Mr. Herb during the entire conversation. I got a feeling that Honky Talk Man and David Schultz and Coco and all the others called him Mr. Herb. (laughs) (laughs) So here we go. So this is Mr. McGuire's story here. He says, uh, I had a friend who trained with Herb Well. He says he was over there at the same time as Larry Booker, who became Larry Latham uh, Moondog Spot. And he says, now my friend, he was about 5'9". He weighed about 245 pounds. He was a mule of a man, basically. You know, that's the way he described him. And he said, the first time in the ring with Mr. Herb, Herb says, uh, come on, son, hit me, kick me, do whatever you want to do. And he says, my friend thinks, uh, you know, I got to take it easy on this guy. He's an old man. (laughs) And so Mr. Herb tells him again, you better go to work or I'm going to go to work on you. (laughs) My friend, he says, goes to grab Mr. Herb. And he said, when he does, Herb picked him up. He body slammed him and he cross faced him and started rubbing his face in the mat. <laughs> Wait, what, what is a cross face? Oh, a cross face. You know, they, they, I guess, you know, if you're not a wrestler, you, you probably don't have a good idea of it. A cross face is basically, it's a nasty little way of getting somebody's attention in the ring. So when you're behind somebody, or you're on top of somebody. You can reach up there with that forearm and you rake that forearm across their face. Oh, you give them a whole lot of pain and aggravation. So, so that's what a cross face is. You know, he gave him a body slam and then he went down on top of him and he cross faced him and then he rubbed his face in the mat. So we'll continue the story. So Herb cross faced him and he rubbed his face in the mat and then he let him up. And, and then uh, the gentleman says, My friend, being the hothead he was, he said, he hauls off and he tries to kick Herb between the legs. <laughs> so he, said, 
He said, Herb sidesteps him. He said, jerks his feet out from under him, goes down on top of him and rubs his face in the mat again. (laughs) (laughs) The third and the last time he said, my friend got up. He said, my friend dropped his head and he charges Mr. Herb like a mad bull. (laughs) So he said, Herb dropped down. He borrowed an arm. He said, he threw him over his head between the ropes and out on the concrete floor. (laughs) So he said, he said, my friend uh, got up wiping his skinned elbows, and, and he said, Herb was standing there. He said he had one foot on the bottom rope, and he said he had his finger pointing at him. And he said, here, I'm the tallest hog on the trough. <laughs> now, you see the way it's good. Now, you see it the way it's going to be if, you, if I train you. You'll do what I say. You will not get mad. You will not fight anybody. If anybody's going to do any ass kicking here, you're looking at the man who's going to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, the gentleman finishes the story. He says, so my friend wrestled briefly and he gave it up. But he says he never forgot that lesson and he tells it quite often. And he says, here's his way of telling it. He says, it goes like this. He says, when he tells the story, he says, boys, I was 23 years old, five foot nine and 245 pounds. Wow. That old man was close to 60. And he said, I did everything in my power to kick his ass. And he said, he bounced me around that ring like a basketball. (laughs) He said, I was swinging and kicking and doing everything I could. He said, he handled me like a newborn baby. (laughs) He said, said, that Herb Welch left a lasting impression on my good friends. (laughs) So, Uh you know, I guess the learning tree lesson from this one, Dave, is Especially when Herb was still alive, you didn't want to be trained by Herb Welch. You didn't want to get there. No doubt. Absolutely fantastic stuff, Ron. One of the best learning tree episodes ever. I don't know how these studcasts can get any better, but I bet you do it. Well, you know, uh, wrestling's one of the greatest business on earth. I'll tell you that. Thousands of remarkable stories. And I guess we're really just getting started, Dave, uh, considering uh, we got a lot more years to talk about. Oh, no doubt. And I wanted to mention this, and we've, you've got a fan in Newburgh, New York, I saw, and that's among a, a ton of places worldwide. But I, I noticed on Facebook that this gentleman from Newburgh, New York, had uh, commented on one of your photos and said he was listening to the Steadcast every week. All right, on Facebook, join Ron on his Facebook at two sites, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and author Ron Fuller Welch, by simply liking and following him there, Twitter and Instagram. Follow him on both at Ron Fuller Welch. Broaden your wrestling history knowledge with this month's Super Studcast number 38. Les Thatcher joins the stud for a deep dive into how southeastern Knoxville, the greatest small territory in the history of professional wrestling, how it was built and how and why it died. This Super Studcast is breaking records. TNstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours, only $2.99. Guaranteed, it's the best deal in wrestling. Plus, the hottest selling old school DVDs, Southeastern Continental, The Lost Territories, has been discovered. Get the five DVD pack, 60 matches, 12 hours, and own your piece of wrestling history with some of the greatest wrestling stars. In history, find out how these two territories produce some of the greatest wrestling talent on the planet 
at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. Only $39.99, and that includes shipping. And one more time, Brutus, Africa's most infamous lion, is tragically sent to America. Ron's chilling new novel has drawn worldwide attention. This fascinating story, being compared to Jaws, is a roller coaster ride of terror through the most visited national park in America, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Get this remarkable novel now on Amazon.com under Brutus Novel or the personally autographed copy from Ron at TNstud.com. Click on Stud Store. So, where do we ride to next week, Ron? Well, we're obviously you got another today's training, and we're going to do something that I have not done before. We're going to try to break down the anatomy of an angle, man, to see how how we get there as bookers. Uh, we're going to dissect Southeastern's Ronnie Garvin's turn to babyface in 1977. That's the angle we're going to take and, and, and really break it down as to how it came about. We're going to learn how a booker during this process creates these extraordinary angles that made old school wrestling so darn successful, man, because the angles were so good. Then, Dave, we're going to get into the cage with the Mongolian Stomper and Ronnie Garvin on Sunday afternoon, March 12, 1977. Can cover that TV promoting it and the attendance for that show. You might be getting into the cage, but I will refrain from that, Ron. Now, you even got my horse scared over here, the little jumpy. <laughs> well, calm down, Dave. Is your horse not actually going to get in the cage? We're going to finish next week with another Thank great you. learning tree question. This one comes from another podcast called the Post Rhetoric Podcast. They ask, how do you recall all these 45-year-old shows in such detail? And I look forward to answering that question next week in the studcast. Uh, I want to thank everybody, uh, obviously, all our great listeners, uh, Dave, that join us for all these, for their support. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there and others. And uh, may God bless us all. Well, don't get into any cage matches this week, folks. Just stay away from those if at all possible. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 